0: Section forty four of Volume One A of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Hoffman History of England. From the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of Sixteen Eighty Eight by David Hume, Volume One A, Section forty four. Chapter nine, Part four. Cardinal Albano, the Pope's legate, displeased with these increasing obstacles to the Crusade, excommunicated Richard as the chief spring of discord but the sentence of excommunication which when it was properly prepared and was zealously supported by the clergy had often great influence in that age proved entirely ineffectual in the present case the chief barons of poitou guienne normandy and anjou being attached to the young prince and finding that he had now received the investiture from their superior lord declared for him and made inroads into the territories of such as still adhered to the king henry disquieted by the daily revolts of his mutinous subjects and dreading still worse effects from their turbulent disposition had again recourse to papal authority and engaged the cardinal anagni who had succeeded albano in the legateship to threaten philip with laying an interdict on all his dominions but philip who was a prince of great vigor and capacity despised the menace and told anagni that it belonged not to the Pope to interpose in the temporal disputes of princes, much less in those between him and his rebellious vassal. He even proceeded so far as to reproach him with partiality, and with receiving bribes from the King of England, while Richard, still more outrageous, offered to draw his sword against the legate, and was hindered by the interposition alone of the company from committing violence upon him. The King of England was now obliged to defend his dominions by arms, and to engage in a war with France and with his eldest son, a prince of great valour, on such disadvantageous terms. Ferti Bernard fell first into the hands of the enemy. Mons was next taken by assault, and Henry, who had thrown himself into that place, escaped with some difficulty. Amboise, Schumann, and Chateau de Loire opened their gates on the appearance of Philip and Richard. Tours was menaced, and the king, who had retired to Saumur, had daily instances of the cowardice or infidelity of his governors, expected the most dismal issue to all his enterprises. While he was in this state of despondency, the Duke of Burgundy, the Earl of Flanders, and the Archbishop of Reims interposed with their good offices, and the intelligence which he received of the taking of Tours, and which made him fully sensible of the desperate situation of his affairs, so subdued his spirit, that he submitted to all the rigorous terms which were imposed upon him. He agreed that Richard should marry the Princess Alice, that that prince should receive the homage and oath of fealty of all his subjects, both in England and in his transmarine's dominions, that he himself should pay twenty thousand marks to the King of France as a compensation for the charges of war, that his own barons should engage to make him observe this treaty by force, and in case of his violating it should promise to join Philip and Richard against him, and that all his vassals, who had entered into confederacy with Richard, should receive an indemnity for the offense. But the mortification which Henry, who had been accustomed to give the law in most treaties, received from these disadvantageous terms, was the least that he met with on this occasion. When he demanded a list of those barons to whom he was bound to grant a pardon for their connections with Richard, he was astonished to find, at the head of them, the name of his second son, John, who had always been his favorite, whose interests he had ever anxiously at heart and who had even, on account of his ascendant over him, often excited the jealousy of Richard. The unhappy father, already overloaded with cares and sorrows, finding this last disappointment in his domestic tenderness, broke out into expressions of the utmost despair, cursed the day in which he received his miserable being, and bestowed on his ungrateful and undutiful children a malediction which he never could be prevailed on to retract. The more his heart was disposed to friendship and affection, the more he resented the barbarous return which his four sons had successfully made to his parental care. And this finishing blow, by depriving him of every comfort in life, quite broke his spirit, and threw him into a lingering fever of which he expired, at the castle of Chinon, near Saumur. His natural son, Geoffrey, who alone had behaved dutifully towards him, attended his corpse to the nunnery of Fontevraud, where it lay in state in the abbey church. Next day, Richard, who came to visit the dead body of his father, and who, notwithstanding his criminal conduct, was not wholly destitute of generosity, was struck with horror and remorse at the sight. At the very instant, and as the attendants observed, blood gushed from the mouth and nostrils of the corpse. He exclaimed, agreeably to vulgar superstition, that he was his father's murderer, and he expressed a deep sense, though too late, of that undutiful behavior which had brought his parent to an untimely grave. Thus died, in the fifty eighth year of his age and thirty fifth of his reign, the greatest prince of his time for wisdom, virtue, and abilities, and the most powerful in the extent of dominion of all those that had ever filled the throne of England. His character in private, as well as in public life, is almost without a blemish, and he seems to have possessed every accomplishment, both of body and mind, which makes a man either estimable or amiable. He was of a middle stature, strong and well-proportioned. His countenance was lively and engaging, his conversation affable and entertaining, his elocution easy, persuasive, and ever at command. He loved peace, but possessed both bravery and conduct in war, was provident without timidity, severe in the execution of justice without rigor, and temperate without austerity. He preserved health, and kept himself from corpulency, to which he was somewhat inclined, by an abstemious diet, and by frequent exercise, particularly hunting. When he could enjoy leisure, he recreated himself either in learned conversation or in reading, and he cultivated his natural talents by study above any prince of his time. His affections, as well as his enmities, were warm and durable. And his long experience of the ingratitude and infidelity of men never destroyed the natural sensibility of his temper which disposed him to friendship and society his character has been transmitted to us by several writers who were his contemporaries, and it extremely resembles in its most remarkable features that of his maternal grandfather Henry I, excepting only that ambition, which was a ruling passion in both, found not in the first Henry such unexceptionable means of exerting itself, and pushed that prince into measures which were both criminal in themselves, and were the cause of further crimes from which his grandson's conduct was happily exempted. This prince, like most of his predecessors of the Norman line, except Stephen, passed more of his time on the continent than in the island. He was surrounded with the English gentry and nobility when abroad, the French gentry and nobility attended him when he resided in England. Both nations acted in the government as if they were the same people, and, on many occasions, the legislatures seem not to have been distinguished. As the king and all the English barons were of French extraction, the manners of that people acquired the ascendant, and were regarded as the models of imitation. All foreign improvements, therefore, such as they were, in literature and politeness, in laws and arts, seem now to have been, in a good measure, transplanted into England, and that kingdom was become little inferior in all the fashionable accomplishments to any of its neighbors on the continent. The more homely, but more sensible manners and principles of the Saxons, were exchanged for the affectations of chivalry, and the subtleties of school philosophy. The feudal ideas of civil government, the Romish sentiments and religion, had taken entire possession of the people. By the former, the sense of submission toward princes was somewhat diminished in the barons. By the latter, the devoted attachment to papal authority was much augmented among the clergy. The Norman and other foreign families established in England had now struck deep root and being entirely incorporated with the people whom at first they oppressed and despised they no longer thought they needed the protection of the crown for the enjoyment of their possessions or considered their tenure as precarious they aspired to the same liberty and independence which they saw enjoyed by their brethren on the continent and desired to restrain those exorbitant prerogatives and arbitrary practices which the necessities of war and the violence of conquest had at first obliged them to indulge in their monarch. That memory, also, of a more equal government under the Saxon princes, which remained with the English, diffused still further the spirit of liberty, and made the barons both desirous of more independence to themselves and willing to indulge it to the people. And it was not long ere this secret revolution in the sentiments of men produced— First violent convulsions in the state, then an evident alteration in the maxims of government. The history of all the preceding kings of England since the conquest gives evident proofs of the disorders attending the feudal institutions. The licentiousness of the barons, their spirit of rebellion against the prince and laws, and of animosity against each other, the conduct of the barons in the transmarine dominions of those monarchs, afforded perhaps still more flagrant instances of those convulsions, and the history of France, during several ages, consists almost entirely of narrations of this nature. The cities, during the continuance of this violent government, could neither be very numerous nor populous, and there occur instances which seem to evince that, though these are always the first seat of law and liberty, their police was in general loose and irregular and exposed to the same disorders with those by which the country was generally infested it was a custom in london for great numbers to the amount of a hundred or more the sons and relations of considerable citizens to form themselves into a licentious confederacy to break into rich houses and plunder them to rob and murder the passengers and to commit with impunity all sorts of disorders by these crimes it had become so dangerous to walk the streets by night that the citizens durst no more venture abroad after sunset than if they had been exposed to the incursions of a public enemy the brother of the earl of fair hours had been murdered by some of those nocturnal rioters and the death of so eminent a person which was much more regarded than that of many thousands of an inferior station so provoked the king that he swore vengeance against the criminals and became thenceforth more rigorous in the execution of the laws there is another instance given by historians which proves to what a height such riots had proceeded and how open these criminals were in committing their robberies a band of them had attacked the house of a rich citizen with the intention of plundering it had broken through a stone wall with hammers and wedges and had already entered the house, sword in hand, when the citizen, armed cap a pie and supported by his faithful servants, appeared in the passage to oppose them. He cut off the right hand of the first robber that entered, and made such stout resistance that his neighbors had leisure to assemble and come to his relief. The man who lost his hand was taken, and was tempted by the promise of pardon to reveal his confederates, among whom was one John Senex, esteemed among the richest and best-born citizens of London. He was convicted by the ordeal, and though he offered five hundred marks for his life, the king refused the money and ordered him to be hanged. It appears, from a statute of Edward I, that these disorders were not remedied, even in that reign. It was then made penal to go out at night after the hour of curfew, to carry a weapon, or to walk without a light or lantern. It is said in the preamble to this law that both by night and by day there were continual frays in the streets of London. Henry's care in administering justice had gained him so great a reputation that even foreign and distant princes made him arbiter and submitted their differences to his judgment. Sanchez, King of Navarre, having some controversies with Alfonso, King of Castile, was contented, though Alfonso had married the daughter of Henry, to choose this prince for a referee, and they agreed each of them to consign three castles into neutral hands as a pledge of their not departing from his award. Henry made the cause be examined before his great council, and gave a sentence, which was submitted to by both parties. These two Spanish kings sent each a stout champion to the court of England, in order to defend his cause, by arms, in case the way of duel had been chosen by Henry. Henry so far abolished the barbarous and absurd practice of confiscating ships which had been wrecked on the coast, that he ordained, if one man or animal were alive in the ship, that the vessel and goods should be restored to the owners. The reign of Henry was remarkable also for an innovation which was afterwards carried further by his successors, and was attended with the most important consequences this prince was disgusted with the species of military force which was established by the feudal institutions and which though it was extremely burdensome to the subject yet rendered very little service to the sovereign the barons or military tenants came late into the field they were obliged to serve only forty days they were unskillful and disorderly in all their operations and they were apt to carry into the camp the same refractory and independent spirit to which they were accustomed in their civil government. Henry, therefore, introduced the practice of making a commutation of their military service for money, and he levied scutages from his baronies and knights' fees, instead of requiring the personal attendance of his vassals. There is mention made, in the history of the exchequer of these scutages in his second, fifth, and eighteenth year, and other writers give us an account of three more of them. When the prince had thus obtained money, he made a contract with some of those adventurers in which Europe at that time abounded. They found him soldiers of the same character with themselves, who were bound to serve for a stipulated time. The armies were less numerous, but more useful, than when composed of all the military vassals of the crown. The feudal institutions began to relax, the kings became rapacious for money, on which all their power depended. The barons, seeing no end of exactions, sought to defend their property, and as the same causes had nearly the same effects in the different countries of Europe, the several crowns either lost or acquired authority according to the different success in the contest. This prince was also the first that levied a tax on the movables or personal estates of his subjects, nobles as well as commons their zeal for the holy wars made them submit to this innovation, and a precedent being once obtained, this taxation became, in following reigns, the usual method of supplying the necessities of the crown. The tax of Dangelt, so generously odious to the nation, was remitted to this reign. Since we are here collecting some detached incidents, which show the genius of the age, and which could not so well enter into the body of our history, it may not be improper to mention the quarrel between Roger, Archbishop of York, and Richard, Archbishop of Canterbury. We may judge of the violence of military men and laymen when ecclesiastics could proceed to such extremities. Cardinal Hagson, being sent in 1176 as legate to Britain, summoned an assembly of the clergy at London and as both the archbishops pretended to sit on his right hand this question of precedency began a controversy between them the monks and retainers of archbishop richard fell upon roger in the presence of the cardinal and of the synod threw him to the ground trampled him under foot and so bruised him with blows that he was taken up half dead and his life was with difficulty saved from their violence the archbishop of canterbury was obliged to pay a large sum of money to the legate in order to suppress all complaints with regard to this enormity we are told by Geraldus cambrensis that the monks and prior of saint swithin threw themselves one day prostrate on the ground and in the mire before henry complaining with many tears and much doleful lamentation that the bishop of winchester who was also their abbot, had cut off three dishes from their table. "'How many has he left you?' said the king. Ten only,' replied the disconsolate monks. "'I myself,' exclaimed the king, "'never have more than three, "'and I enjoin your bishop to reduce you to the same number.'" The king left only two legitimate sons, Richard, who succeeded him, and John, who inherited no territory, though his father had often intended to leave him a part of his extensive dominions. He was thence commonly denominated Lackland. Henry left three legitimate daughters, Maud, born in 1156, and married to Henry, Duke of Saxony, Eleanor, born in 1162, and married to Alfonso, King of Castile, Joan, born in 1165, and married to William, King of Sicily. Henry is said by ancient historians to have been of a very amorous disposition. They mention two of his natural sons by Rosamond, daughter of Lord Clifford, namely Richard Longesby, or Longsword, so called from the sword he usually wore, who was afterwards married to Ella, the daughter and heir of the Earl of Salisbury. Anne Jeffrey, first Bishop of Lincoln, then Archbishop of York. All the other circumstances of the story commonly told of that lady seem to be fabulous. End of section forty four. Recording by Robert Hoffman, Akron, Ohio.